How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 124 of X-Lapsed. And uh, just like I said last episode, thank goodness it's Marauders. Uh, now, today this is uh, another one of those late-night editions of X-Lapsed because uh, I'm recording this on the night of Valentine's Day. So the wife and I just finished uh, with our annual cheap pizza meal uh, for Valentine's Day. Uh, it's a little tradition we've had since... Boy, probably 2004 or so, um, back when I was too broke to do anything, really. I, was, uh, I wasn't I was even buying comics at the time. I was beyond broke and uh, wanted to do something a little bit special for Valentine's Day. Just, a, you know, something different than the, the ordinary, which to us was ordering pizza. Because we couldn't afford to do that. So I actually had to budget for a $5 pizza. Because uh, this is back before, you know, like all the chains did like the five or six dollar, you know, medium pizzas. This is back in the day before they did that. So I found one place that had uh, cheap pizza and I ordered that on my way home from work (laughs) and uh, brought that home for us to have as a little Valentine's Day treat. And even though we're, you know, we're a little bit more comfortable now than we were back then, uh, we still like to keep that one up. So... We had ourselves uh, a little pizza. We uh, took it to the new house because we are living between two homes right now. But uh, wanted it to be a little different, so we did go to the other house and uh, had a good time. Had a good time there. So I hope everyone listening had a great Valentine's Day. And uh, I suppose I will uh, you know, quit the jibba-jabba here and uh, start jibba-jabbering about the reason we've all assembled today, which is, of course, Marauders number 15. Now, this issue had a January 2021 cover date. The story is called X of Swords, Chapter 14. Written by Jerry Duggan and Benjamin Percy, with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale, 11-11-2020. Now, let's look at the cover. Okay, it's a nice cover. It's a really nice-looking cover, but... It's also a cover which uh, kind of takes the wind out of the sails of last issue's cliffhanger, doesn't it? Okay, it completely ruins it, but uh, it's nice to look at. <laughs> now, we open with our customary quote page, which includes one from Sun Tzu, which normally I would find to be pretty pretentious, but in this case it actually fits the situation. It is, every battle is won or lost before it is ever fought. So it totally fits with the theme and the, the tone and tenor of this issue. From here, double page spread of creds, and then our roll call, and... Whoa, there are a lot of words here. Um, now, something I don't often mention 
is that there are actually a few words of recap on our roll call pages. You know, it catches us up on what's been going on. It's usually very surface-level stuff, so I generally don't bother because it's all stuff that we've already read and talked about on the show. Here, though, I mean, it's almost a full page. And our sole character in our roll call is... Wolverine. Hmm. It's not as though he doesn't have his own solo book or anything, right? Now, the interesting thing about this recap is that it shares a story that we haven't gotten to read. Now, if you remember how at the end of last issue, Wolverine killed Saturnine. Well, that set in motion a whole series of events that led to the Amenthi and the Iraqis invading and pretty much decimating other world and then the Earth. And my main purpose of bringing it up right now is that this recap of a story we never read mentions Mora X and the No Place. Huh. Weird. Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's get into comics here, and we're completely in flames here. Wolverine has been placed on an X-shaped crucifix just like Uncanny 251. He's then approached by Saturnine from behind, who plunges claws of her own right through our man's chest. And then, roll call. What? Huh? Okay, roll call. Storm, Wolverine, Magic, Captain Avalon, Betsy Britton, Gorgon, Cypher, Apocalypse, Cable Ward, Death, Pogger, Pog, Iska the Unbeaten, Solemn, Bay the Blood Moon, Red Root the Forest, the White Sword, Summoner, Annihilation, and Saturnine. And back to comics again, where we find out that Wolverine never killed Saturnine. He just thought about doing it. And so these last few pages were Opal Luna telling him what might happen if he had. Not that Wolverine probably even has the ability to kill an interdimensional witch queen, but what are you going to do? Wolverine takes his seat back at the dinner table in front of his spiked sushi, which I think I said was steak last issue. Steak, sushi, I, I always get those two confused. Anywho, while he was daydreaming, young Douglas, Douglas Ramsey, he's helped himself to some of the raw fish rolls. Wolverine's cool with it, but is alerted by his sniffer that something here ain't right. Indeed, Doug clutches his throat and begins foaming at the mouth. The kid has been poisoned. We did see War sprinkling something into that just last issue. Now, Wolverine and Storm get all up in his area while he hacks and clings to life. Iska the Unbeaten, the no-nonsense warrior that she is, casually walks over and jams her knife into Cypher's throat, opening a second airway so the kid doesn't suffocate on his own foamy vomit. Then the White Sword turns to war to read her the riot act about attempting to poison one of their competitors during a feast. War's only recourse is that it was supposed to be Wolverine who ate the dosed fish. Which uh, is pretty ignorant on War's part, since Logan was able to sniff out the poison pretty quick, right? Wolverine demands Saturnine send them back to Krakoa so they can get Doug some treatment, but she says that'd be cause for forfeit. The White Sword walks over to Doug, all the while lamenting the fact that he sided with cowards. He grabs Doug by the throat and proceeds to cure him of his poisoning. If you remember, that is the White Sword's power. When the deed is done, he tells Cypher that he owes him nothing for the healing. Off to the side, Apocalypse and Annihilation have themselves an awkward chat about child-rearing, and it's, uh, it's pretty cute. It's pretty funny. Um, Apocalypse is like, I-, I see you've done well with the kids, and she's like, yeah, I've tried. <laughs> Which is so surreal for this scene, it's, but it's, it works. It's very, very funny. 
Now, amid the confusion, Brian, he walks up to Saturnine to have a word. In a really neat piece of business, in a really interesting use of the comic's language here, Saturnine mutes all the other word balloons on the panel besides her and Brian's. I like this a lot. It's so simple, but just so damn effective in conveying what's actually happening here. Everybody still has word balloons. They're just empty. So cool. So It's like so subtle and just... Such a such a nice tweak on the language of sequential art here. Love it. Brian suggests that the attempted poisoning ought to disqualify the Iraqi contingent from the contest of swords. Saturnine kind of agrees, but reminds Brian that Wolverine did just consider killing her just a few pages ago, so as about we just call it even. Brian ain't happy, but really, what choice does he have but to accept her reasoning here? Wolverine and War chat for a bit, And it's made pretty clear quite quickly that they both have the same goals in mind here, which is getting their their own people home safely. Then, one of our courses is served. This is a feast, after all, and it's a disgusting, steaming scarab. I tell you what, guys, I can't even eat lobster because it looks so much like an insect. I, I could not imagine what I'd do if someone tried to serve me a giant, crackling beetle. Now, Death is none too pleased to have such a sacred critter served to him, and so he kills the waiter. He does so by removing his Anubis helmet. So I guess it wasn't his actual head, which is kind of a bummer. And we see that Death has like a scarab pin or a brooch or something on the back of his head, but we don't get to see his face. As he's looking at the waiter, the waiter poofs into dust. So this must be his doom note. It's... You know, more like a death gaze, but I'm not about to argue with the man. Now, as he's doing this, Wolverine helps himself to that nasty beetle. And I really wasn't expecting this issue to resort to this much comedy. And I was not I was also never expecting for this comedy to be as effective as it is. <laughs> but it is. And the best is still yet to come. I tell you what. Now, we rejoin Saturnine and Brian again. And here's where I get a little bit of context, I think. Now, I recently got a letter from Damien, which we'll cover sometime in the next, you know, next few episodes here, regarding the Braddock Ruse in Excalibur number 13, which I found to be quite off-putting and didn't really see much reason for it. Now, the whole gimmick there that went over my head at the time was Saturnine wasn't keeping the Starlight Sword away from the Krakoans. She just wanted Brian to wield it instead of Betsy. Now, I missed that at the time, but it does retroactively help to make sense of the motivations during that issue, so that was very good. Uh, Brian and Opal Luna talk a little bit more about that right here. Over at the table, we get our next course, and it is Great Horned Beasts, a.k.a. Unicorns. And uh, yeah, they look pretty gross. Uh, The White Sword and Storm look at the meal in disgust, while Logan chows down. Now, the White Sword and the Creepy Summoner talk a little bit about resurrection. Now, the Summoner claims to be kind of disinterested with the whole the whole shebang here. He ain't planning on dying anytime soon, but he is planning to only die once. The White Sword doesn't even know if he himself can be resurrected and doesn't plan to ever find out. Cable attempts to butt in on a conversation between Apocalypse and Annihilation and kind of gets slapped down for his ignorance. And I tell you what... Growing up when I did in the 90s, it's very weird, and weird is a word that Apocalypse doesn't seem to care for in this situation, but it is very weird to see Cable and A actually talk. 
and and not just you know shout each other's name and and say stab your eyes and stuff like that. So this is very very this is very surreal and, I, and I'm loving it. Next up, we get an info page, and it is the betting odds for the tournament, courtesy of Mad Jim Jaspers. And this is a fun one. This is, I like this one a lot. Let's look at the odds here. We're going to start with the favorite to win the whole thing, and then we're going to go all the way down to the least favorite. You probably know who the least favorite is, but we'll get there. Now, Iska the Unbeaten is the overwhelming favorite with 2 to 1 odds. Then, Annihilation has 3 to 1 odds. Apocalypse, 5 to 1. The White Sword is 6 to 1. Bay the Blood Moon, 10 to 1. Gorgon, 20 to 1. Pog Ur Pog, 20 to 1. Wolverine, 20 to 1. Captain Avalon, 30 to 1. Betsy Britton, 30 to 1. Solemn, 40 to 1. The Summoner is 40 to 1. Death, 50 to 1. Magic, 50 to 1. Storm, 50 to 1. War, 50 to 1. Kid Cable is 100 to 1. Red Root the Forest is also 100 to 1. Cypher is 5,000 to 1. So if you're, if you're a betting individual, I mean, you can make bank on, uh, on old Doug Ramsey there. But uh, I love this one. This is very, very funny. And uh, really, I talked last episode, I think, about how Otherworld... This is the first time that I'm really seeing Otherworld feel like a lived-in place here. And stuff like this... The info pages so often are just such a... They feel like filler. They feel like a waste of time here. But this here is kind of an indictment on the fact that this is a lived-in world. This is a lived-in place. You know, they're actually betting on this. This is something that the entire region knows is happening. And uh, they want to get a piece of the action here. So really, really dug this one. Let's get back to comics. And we get to a rather strange few pages here. Now, Magic and Kid Cable chat up Iska the Unbeaten, right? And they ask her to prove that she can't be beaten in a number of odd and interesting ways. Odd contests here. And it's worth noting that Iska seems almost amused by this request. And and I'm really beginning to come around to her as a character here. Hats off to Duggan and Percy here. They They are taking these ciphers, not Doug Ramsey, but cipher empty characters here and... Giving them motivation, giving them personality, giving them character, and it's it's working. It's working. So, Magic, Kid Cable, and Niska then proceed to compete in a number of ways here. First, they pin the tail on Pog or Pog, like you know, pin the tail on the donkey. You know, you play play at a you know kid's birthday birthday party. Seriously, they put a tail on Pog or Pog, and I'm not kidding. Um, then cup stacking and a shell game. Now, Iska handily beats Ilyana and little Nate. Cable can't even stack the cups and actually cuts his finger on some broken glass, to which Apocalypse actually sees him literally licking his wound, which is highly embarrassing for our boy. And Apocalypse kind of gives him like a uh, look. It's pretty funny. Magic then does the whole what number am I thinking of thing, to which Iska knows that she's not even thinking of a number. Magic then wonders aloud what might happen should Iska ever fight Domino, who has her luck powers, to which Iska calmly replies, your friend would lose. Cable admits that he is not looking forward to having to face Iska should it come down to it, and Iska takes that as a sign that Cable has a measure of self-preservation. We move over to Red Root and Death as they watch this scene unfold, and they have themselves a chat about it here. 
Now, death sees their opponents as soft. Red Root suggests that had the Iraqis lived on Krakoa, perhaps they'd be the same. You know, they were raised in the light instead of in the dark. Maybe this is just a, uh, maybe it's nature and nurture, I don't know. But uh, death seems to ponder it, but stops himself from fully thinking about it. And reconciles himself to uh, the fact that uh, come the morning, the Krakoans get culled. We head to the end of the issue and feast with Saturnine announcing the first battle in our series of AVX issues. And that's Araco vs. X-Men, naturally, not the other thing. Now, it looks like our first contest will pit Betsy Britton versus Uh-oh, Iska the Unbeaten. Uh, sure doesn't bode well, does it? That's the end of the issue. We are out of here. Next episode, we will uh, assumedly be fighting in Excalibur number 14. Okay, okay, okay. This was excellent. This was a lot of fun. Sure, the cliffhanger fake-out was a bit eh, you know, but the delivery here was at least creatively done, right? We went through... They gave us a roll call page. I mean, I bought in. (laughs) I'd have preferred that the cover not give the entire thing away, but what are you going to do? That gimmick of the opening pages, I thought it was quite effective here. I really thought that we were entering into a full issue of Wolverine Dream Sequence. And I was not looking forward to that. So when we went to the to the real roll call and then into the real story, I was relieved. And I, I, I was satisfied by the fact that it's like, okay, they got me. They got me here. This is reality warping. This is Saturnine's powers here. It's almost like a metal level, right? It's like she controlled what we read. And uh, I really, really liked that that approach to it. Very, very creative. Um, because it's easy to do a fake out. But when you actually commit to the bit like this, like doing, doing the roll call page with a recap and a ridiculously stretched out recap, it, really, really fun. Let's talk a little bit about the recap here. Because it recaps a story that didn't actually happen But we have to assume that Wolverine still mentally lived through And I mentioned during the synopsis that Mora X is part of this You know, the Iraqis came and they took her out So, does that mean that Wolverine now knows that Mora is alive on Krakoa? Huh That's, uh, That's some food for thought, isn't it? I mean, we don't know that he doesn't know but we certainly don't know that he does either. Will it eventually be revealed that he always knew about Mora? You know, considering that this issue also includes a demonstration of how well Logan's nose works, it might stand to reason that he knows about the nose place. No place. Nose. Nose. Mora's no place in the nose. I, I'm just going to move on. Now, but, as simple as a simple line in a recap page that... If I were a betting man, I'd suggest many to most readers skim or skip. It feels a little bit like a throwaway. Maybe an Easter egg. I don't know. I guess at the very least, we could say that Saturnine knows about Mora. But then again, she is an interdimensional witch queen. So, there's that. Now, before we get into the story, I'd like to look at this and the prior two issues of Marauders simply as issues... Of Marauders Because this is our third and final Marauders chapter of X of Tens How did the crossover treat this series? Well, let's ask a different question here How did this series treat the crossover? 
I'd say that this this series treated the crossover incredibly well. In fact, I'd say that this series saved this crossover, at least to this point. Let's look at the other side here. How did the crossover treat the series itself here? If I were someone who only read Marauders, I think I'd probably be a bit annoyed with how few Marauders there were in this. We don't get our star character. We don't get Kitty. We don't get Iceman. No Pyro, no Emma, no Bishop. We did get the Storm solo in number 13, which would definitely be like a perfect issue of Marauders, right? It's a, it's a character there. Kitty did show up in the, uh, in the framing sequence. Perfectly serviceable as an issue of Marauders. Now, Storm was in 14 and 15, but outside of her dance with death really wasn't who we were focusing on. It's not quite as jarring as X-Factor number 85 from back in the long ago during the Executioner Song event, because, I mean, that was an issue that featured zero members of the cast, and instead followed Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable. So, it's not like that. And, I mean, as someone who's reading everything, like I am, I love this. I thought these were value-added chapters. I thought it was great. But if I were just reading Marauders, I'd probably be counting the days until this crossover ends. Because uh, your story, I think it was Damien who said it was as though Marauders, they pushed pause. And that's literally what happened here. We actually just paused an entire series, and we'll get back to it after this. So if I were if I were really, really chomping at the bit to see Kitty and Sebastian Shaw do the thing... I'd probably be a little miffed that uh, we had this this uh, this sword stuff going on here. Now let's stick with our cast member here. Let's stick with Storm. Um, last issue, she told Wolverine not to miss before the feast started here. She went over and she's like, hey, whatever you're thinking, don't miss. I took that to mean then, you know, fight with all your might. You know, don't don't show mercy. You know, if you're pitted against whoever, don't show them any mercy. Give no quarter. Just win. Upon reflection, I think she knew that Logan was thinking about taking out Saturnine and was kind of giving him her, uh, she was kind of co-signing it. And uh, how do we feel about that? How do we feel about that? I kind of like it, but at the same time, I kind of don't. One thing we've been seeing a lot here in the build is that uh, the person most invested in this isn't one of the competitors at all. It's Saturnine. Saturnine is the one who's most excited about this contest. We saw War try to poison Wolverine. You know, we've we have the Hellions stomping all over other world trying to steal swords. We have Wolverine trying to kill Saturnine here. We have all these characters looking for ways out of actually having to cross swords. And uh, I kind of like that, because it does show... I mean, we've talked about stakes, and we will constantly talk about stakes. That's one of the, uh, it's one of the tropes of this program here. But it heightens the urgency, because we can see... It's, hard to, it's really hard to display fear in a subtle way. You know, we can show fear, we can show wide eyes, we can show sweat, but in a subtle way where it's like a deeper fear. It's something that they're thinking about. I mean, we even had Cyclops trying to, like, connect with magic so they can just just bring all the X-Men into other world. We, we saw that in, uh, I think it was the issue of Cable uh, a couple of episodes back. 
it's hard to subtly show fear, but we are seeing it here. We're seeing these these characters who just they don't want to fight. They just want to go home. They just want their people safe. They just want their side to not die. And they're doing whatever they can to avoid that because once the fighting begins here, I have to assume I haven't read ahead, so I don't know how legit the fights are going to be. But once we're squared off, we've got Iska and Betsy next episode. You gotta assume someone is going to die. I mean, these are fights to the death, are they not? So that's uh, it's 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 all but um, it's all but assured that there are going to be some casualties. So I, I like the fact that the the X Men and the Iraqis are trying to uh, trying to find a way to to win without actually. Fighting here, and, and I mean, it goes back to our Sun Tzu uh, quote. You know, the, the the battles are won or lost before before the fight even begins. So, I like it. I really, really like it. Let's talk about our bad guys. Let's talk about the Iraqis here, because for the first what what is this chapter thirteen? Is this chapter thirteen? Chapter fourteen? Um, for the first many parts of this. We had no we had no reason to care about these characters here. And while like I think I said this last episode, I'm not rooting for the bad guys to win. I can, I can certainly have empathy for them now. I I like I, I am starting to like a lot of these characters here. Let's let's look at Iska the Unbeaten, who is just a fun character. She seems reasonable, she seems personable, she seems just like a competitive character who uh, who wants to win. This isn't personal, you know? This isn't personal to her. This is... I, I don't think it matters what side she's fighting for, really. I mean, we saw her jump in the flashback from the uh, the Iraqis to the Amenthes or whatever, but I don't think it matters what side she fights for because she just wants to fight. She just wants to win. She's not inherently evil. This isn't personal. This is a business arrangement. It's like, okay, we're going to fight. Let's do it. Let's do it here. And so we see her humoring these Krakoan kids, Cable and Magic here, with all these silly contests here, and she wipes the floor with them naturally. But I really thought that showed a lot of her. Uh, that showed some character to her. It showed a little bit of depth, and uh, it made it so she was a character that I'm looking forward to seeing. If we ever see them again after the storyline, which I kind of doubt, but if if we did, I wouldn't mind it. You know, she is a mutant. Maybe she'll come to Krakoa. You never know. Another character, the White Sword, who up to this point has just been a guy who we heard stories about who sat in a throne and re- resurrected a hundred people every day. That's all we really knew about him here, but we see here that he has honor. We see here that he's annoyed that war tried to poison one of their opponents and thought that they were cowardly for doing so. I thought that was really cool here. And then just being a being a an honorable sportsman, he goes over and he fixes Doug up just fine. I thought that was really cool. It showed integrity. It showed that uh, this is a guy who's taking this seriously, and he doesn't want a fluke win. He doesn't want a forfeit win. He wants, he's there for the contest. He might be there to prove something to the people who drafted him into the contest, but 
at the end of the day, he's got honor. He's an honorable guy. He's an honorable warrior. And uh, it really grew on me here. Really grew on me here. Um, just so much great character bits here. And I mean, we got to talk a little bit about the humor. Um, that's another trope of the show is talking about how humor often misses the mark. But here, it was subtle. It was subtle and really well done here. Apocalypse and Genesis talking in the midst of this, you know, fracas with a Doug Ramsey foaming at the mouth on the floor. He's just like, oh, so you, you did what, you did well with the kids. Yeah, yeah, I tried, I tried. You know, I, it's silly, but it also is natural and uh, quite well done. Quite well done here. Um, really, these uh, these last two issues of Marauders uh, just really pulled me back in. Uh, they were much needed because I was at my tipping point with this event. I was not enjoying it. It felt bloated. It felt bland. It felt just so superficially epic because it just didn't feel epic at all. And here with these two, I mean, it's it's been two issues of a dinner party, which... I don't know how it how how it captured me the way it did because you know you think about it two issues of a dinner party you'd be like are you kidding me <laughs> it's like haven't we been building to this damn fight for 15 issues now 14 issues now can we just get on with it but these two I believe these two issues were vital in giving giving our opponents some uh, some personality some life some character and uh, without these two issues, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care at all about what's coming. And here I am, actually looking forward to the fight. So, great issue, great issue, highly recommended. Um, the art might have been a little bit, um, a little bit scratchy in places where last issue was not. But uh, I mean, we cracked out two issues of Marauders in a row here, so. I'm willing to uh, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt there that maybe they had to uh, hustle a little bit to get this in there. But uh, if you're not reading Marauders, you ought to be. And uh, that's all I got to say about this issue. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a we got a loaded one, so let's get into it. We're starting with Damien, who's talking about New Mutants number thirteen. Now he says. I've been very enthusiastic about the last two issues, so I suppose I had to come back down to Earth at some point. This is pretty much the definition of an okay issue. There's nothing actively bad about it, but it isn't exciting me. Like the Marauders issue, it's focusing on character, but it's not doing it well. The main problem is Ileana. I do not understand why she's written like this. The original story of Ileana was that she had to become hard and ruthless to survive Limbo, but that the Fellowship of the New Mutants was able to help her regain her humanity. Why would she throw away what she's gone out of her way to gain? I think Brisson has taken Hickman's presentation a little too far. It sounds a little harsh, but I'm glad he. this is Brisson's last issue. Under his hands, the book has never felt very New Mutancy. It's always felt like a, more, a generic X-Men spin-off. And you're right. You're right. Um, the Brisson issues here, and, and I mean, I'm coming off of reading the Extermination miniseries, which I absolutely adored. So seeing a Brisson story here that I'm not that I'm not really glomming on to is it's very disappointing. His issues in New Mutant so far have, like you said, they've been okay. We had the farm story, which I mean, upon reflection here. Had it not interrupted the space story, 
I probably would have received it a lot better. But it still wasn't great. You know, it was still very... It was over-reliant on character relationships that really weren't established. Uh, Boom Boom being a drunk. I just... (laughs) And that cartel stuff, which was... Ugh, not great, but um, I, I'm interested to see how uh, Vita, Vita, Ayala does on New Mutants, uh, especially after reading their uh, their Marauders issue, which was 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 quite good. And as for Ilyana, I'm so glad you said that because I feel like she's been written she's been written out of character so much of late that I felt like I was misremembering that she was actually a more friendly and less hard edged character at some point. I was like, not everybody else can't be wrong. It must be me that has this wrong. So hearing it from you that, that yes, in fact, she was a a softer and more gentle person is is good to hear. It's a uh, validation for me. Now, Damien continues. What I liked about this issue is the relationship between Doug and Krakoa. It's interesting to see this in contrast to Doug's relationship with Warlock, where they're close enough to pretend to be the same person. Talking of the pretense, I wonder if it's down to Xavier trying to hide Warlock from Mora. I imagine he knows about her fear of the phalanx, but would see Warlock as non-threatening. This would also explain why Doug was so careless about the secret. He's been told to hide Warlock, but not why. That's another addition to my long list of Hoxpox theories, and I think I think you're onto something there. That that very well might be, because Mora has the memories that she would know. She would know about the technarchy and the, uh, what did they call it in, uh, in X to the Third Power? What the hell did they call it? The, uh, oh boy, I can't remember the name of it. It was like the, the rising, the ascendance, right? Was it the ascendancy or whatever? She'd know about that because she was kind of there for it. So, yeah, I don't think she'd want Warlock around. So that is a really, really good theory here. Xavier, what, what would he care about Warlock? He knows Warlock. But uh, Mora might not uh, might not want him there, so that's that's interesting. And then we think more about how how Doug. I, th- I think, unless I dreamt this this scene up, I'm pretty sure he something happened where like he like the island was infected <laughs> with warlocky stuff. So maybe that ha- maybe that'll all come to bear before uh, before long. But uh, I, I definitely think I definitely think there's a lot of meat on on that theory there. Damien continues, Reading along with you is the first time I had read this issue since I first bought it, as it's entirely possible to reread X of Tens while skipping New Mutants. This means I never reread the one line in this issue that predicts exactly what happens to Doug in X of Tens, particularly as it seems to come out of nowhere when it happens. Really fun to see that, and you're not the first person to say that. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what this is and then coming back to see... uh, to see the uh, you know the big giveaway line, that's going to be really cool, I think. Uh, Damien continues. On to your discussion of Doug's powers. I'm glad they've dialed them back. When he was first resurrected, they were edging on making him like Taskmaster with the ability to pick up physical capabilities just by understanding how they worked. I prefer him to be an ideas man. Anyway, until Doug gains a reputation as an accomplished swordsman, make mine X-lapsed. And yes, uh, I'm that Taskmaster uh, reference was was really really good there. Um, that's one thing I think I talked about when we discussed the issue of New Mutants here. It's like why are writers so focused, so hyper focused on making Doug capable on the battlefield? 
It's like he has powers that nobody else has. Just let him do what he does. He doesn't need to be a powerhouse. He doesn't need to be on the same level as any of the, even the middling fighters uh, in the X-Men roster here. Just let him do what he does. He doesn't have to be a fighter, and not every story has to be about making him a fighter or lamenting the fact that he's not one. It feels like, you know, I... I said it uh, during that episode, it's the Aquaman thing It's like, dur her, he talks to fish Okay, well, no, no, he's actually quite powerful Let me show you and tell you why Over and over and over again But uh, (laughs) thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that issue, Damien Uh, Next, Andrew Franklin giving us a little bit of Exoswords catch-up here He says, contracting COVID has really kept me down this last week I don't recommend it But now that I'm feeling healthier, I figured I'd share some thoughts about our story so far. Well, to start, I'm really happy that you're feeling better, man. I didn't even know. Definitely, definitely happy that you're feeling better. Andrew continues here. The only two issues I enjoyed reading of this first part of the crossover were Marauders number 13 and Hellions number 5. I thought Marauders did a good job reintroducing readers to Storm, showcasing her drive and how she's able to make tough decisions when she needs to. However, I felt the drama around the Skybreaker felt a little forced. This sword we're just being introduced to is so important to Wakanda that there is no doubt it would tear the country apart should it be taken. I did like what they were going for, putting up two opposing sides who were just doing what is right for their people, but saying Storm will all but guarantee a violent insurrection just seemed a bit much to me. It felt like forced stakes. I left this issue feeling rather annoyed with T'Challa and the Wakandans. They really talked down to Storm over what she is doing when there is no doubt in my mind that Black Panther would do the exact same thing if he were in Storm's position and and feel just as righteous about it. Very, very true. I didn't know if the Skybreaker was... Like an established piece of Black Panther lore I, my, my Black Panther reading is Christopher Priest And that's it So, And that one was more focused on other things Than uh, Wakandan history There was a lot of Wakanda in it But it wasn't like the ancient Wakandan lore Like we were being shown here With the, like the first sword forged by a king and I think this was the introduction of it, so it's it does feel quite forced. It's it's like, hey, we we never in the you know fifty years Black Panther's been around, we've never mentioned this sword before. But it's the most important piece of Wakandan ephemera that there ever was and ever will be. Yeah, it did feel a little. And I'm trying to think here. Like, aren't there other swords? <laughs> I don't know why we need to create so many damn swords when I'm sure people have carried swords in the Marvel books before. I mean, isn't Conan stomping around the Marvel Universe now? He's probably got a sword we could borrow, right? But uh, you're right about uh, the the opposing forces here. And I think that was my main takeaway when we when we discussed that issue was the, the concept of Krakoan ethnocentrism. I felt that was a very strong part of this where we have... Black Panther, like, questioning Storm Like, where where are you? Why is this so important to you? Why are these people so important to you? What about these people? And it's these two sides, like you said here Trying to do what's right for their people And, uh, really, really good Really good And I, and I'm it's funny, because I'm actually liking it a lot more In retrospect than I did when I actually read it I felt, when I read it I felt like it kind of overstayed its welcome it, it was an oversized issue And it just felt like, uh It felt a little bit expanded to I think we got a few too many pages in there. That's <laughs> what I'm trying to say. 
Andrew continues, I loved Hellions number five. I've been very resistant to a lot of the humor in this book, but this issue had me literally laughing out loud as I read it. Sassy Sinister has won me over. Zeb Wells seems to have great comedic timing. Whether it's a scene cut to a now capeless and angry Sinister, or Grey Crow ready to slice Hellion in two without missing a beat, and all the humor in this issue worked for me. But beyond the enjoyable laughs of this issue is a really good story that feels like a perfect fit for this team. Go sabotage the event. What better use could Sinister's own Dirty Dozen, or Sinister Seven, be put be put to for this crossover? It's a nice, nice side excursion from sword gathering and barely justified filler, and even if the issue was half as good as it was, it would have been a nice break from everything else around it. Now, the scene you spotlighted of the team talking about Empath's resurrection was something I was very glad the creative team included, since it shows that these themes that were present in the first arc and that you talk about a lot on the show are not lost in all the fun. I really like that it's an odd team of misfits that seem the most focused on what Krakoan resurrection means for their souls, for a lack of a better word. And personally, I liked seeing Havoc take on a leadership role this issue, even if it was just in a mission briefing. I'm very happy that my favorite character is in a great book. Yes, Hellions is just, it's just an awesome book, isn't it? It's just so much fun. And like you said here, it's uh it's not just a humor book, but it's got humor. It's funny. Zeb Wells is funny. And uh, Steven Segovia, who he's been working with, can convey that. Uh, that scene you talked about, the, the scene cut, you know, he's like, he turns to Jamie Braddock and he's like, well, what do you want? And then the next the next panel is them walking through the, uh, the marketplace with Sinister all angry and capeless. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Perfect presentation. So funny. So it's not just a humor book, but it has humor. It's not just drama, but it's got drama. It's not just action, but it's got action. It's really, it's it's really such a good book. Really such a good book. I love the fact that they're we're using this team in such a creative way. Because Hellions could have just sat out the event. They could have just stopped publishing it. And I'm kind of surprised that they didn't. But then again, we needed to bloat this thing. But what I'm saying here is we diverted, you know? This was not the usual that we were getting from these Exitens issues. This is something altogether different, and we know that they're not going to be successful, but it's it's about the journey, and the journey has been wildly, wildly enjoyable. Uh, the scene, the empath resurrection scene here. Now, this was great because, like you said here, it's this weird team of misfits and... And the naive orphan maker who just does can't wrap his head around what resurrection means and what's real and what's not real and what's death and what's life. And is this one who I'm looking at who's alive, is it really is are they really alive? Or did the are they dead? Is this a different person who just looks like it's so many awesome questions that we've been talking about a lot. And uh it was almost like a validation to see it on the page because it's like, okay, we're on to something here. This these these discussions that we've been having here on the air aren't for me just to hear my own voice. <laughs> it's something that's actually gonna it's actually something that might bear fruit. So really can't say enough good things about Hellions. It is it, it is the the dark horse shocker of uh, of this line. I thought I was going to hate it. I expected to hate it. When I saw Zeb Wells was on it, I kind of wanted to hate it because I wanted to hate him despite the fact that he's fantastic. <laughs> it's it's great. It's a great book. If you're not reading Hellions, 
pick up Hellions. It's great. Andrew continues. Cable was disappointing, but solely as a casualty of this crossover. New Mutants wasn't awful, but as you as yourself as you yourself has stated, Doug has one story and it gets told over and over again. I don't understand why X writers are obsessed with having him be more useful on the battlefield. I get why Doug would want to be, but at this point, a story where Doug learns to take pride in his abilities and achieves some contentment as a very useful behind-the-scenes support would be revolutionary. I like that Brian Braddock has a new guise as Captain Avalon, but anything I enjoyed in Excalibur feels like a hard-fought victory. <laughs> yes, Cable, it was the weakest issue of Cable yet, but as you said, as a casualty of the crossover, they needed... They needed things to happen, and they needed things to happen in that book, unfortunately. Uh, New Mutants, we've, you know, we just talked about it. Yeah, Doug has that one story, and it keeps getting told. And uh, Brian Braddock is Captain Avalon. I thought that was pretty neat, too. That was pretty neat, too. Kind of questionable in that he just saw that weirdo Jamie Braddock, the, you know, the king of Avalon, kill somebody. Like, just a few panels before he killed the, uh, he killed the heretic Jubilee. You know, it's a little weird, but uh, like you said, we take what we can get in Excalibur, and uh, <laughs> it's always a hard-fought victory. Now, Andrew continues. To answer your question about Gorgon and his swords, I think that Gorgon already has his two swords, and I'm very thankful for that merciful shortcut. Maybe if we've read the X of Swords handbook, we would have known that. And the X of Swords handbook episode is still coming. still coming. I'm just really, really, really... Behind on my due diligence there with the move And it's just been uh, Time is a premium, unfortunately And it'll get there, though It'll get there, though I have, I have several of the parts already set Just got uh, many more to do So it might be just a, uh, a special episode that happens Probably long after we're done with X of Swords But uh, it'll get done <laughs> I promise it'll get done and wraps up with That's all I can muster to say about the big crossover so far I hope the back half is better So until we get a third retelling of X-Men number 12 Make mine X lapsed Oh, could you imagine? Yeah, I wouldn't even be surprised I wouldn't even be surprised If we got another telling of X-Men number 12 Ugh. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on the first half And I'm so happy to hear that you're feeling better That's a big relief there, brother I'm really happy that you're feeling better uh, Next, Walt, our buddy Walt Neeland uh, We've got actually two letters here Talking about the same two issues here Now Walt's going to talk about both X-Men and Marauders number 14 So X-Men number 14, he says I thought the story seemed familiar when I read it but diving in around chapter 7 or 8, the cable issue on reading, I haven't gone through X-Men number 12. I did pay full price for number 14, though I haven't done so yet for number 12. And yeah, X-Men number 12 and X-Men number 14 share a lot of similarities. And, uh, boy, I mean, I get everything mail order, so I pay... Anywhere from 50% to 60% of the of the book And I still feel kind of ripped off But uh, I couldn't imagine someone going in there And dropping dropping four bucks before tax on the counter for it Ugh. Uh, Now Maraud is number 14 Storm's Dance with Death was interesting I was sort of surprised realizing for myself That yeah, I'm not aware of her ever having died Where so many other characters have Pre-Hox, Pox, Docs, XOS And... The resurrection stuff, I don't actually really count Hickman-era deaths. Or, and with the resurrection stuff, I don't count Hickman-era deaths. 
I include that because that's a question I'd like to pose to people. I mean, it might be revealed that these are clones, or these are pod people, or this is a dream, or this is a moral life that gets wiped out. We can, anything can happen here. But how do, do we count these Hickman deaths? Do we count the Dawn of X deaths here? Do we, do we say that Quentin Quire has died a dozen times? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like uh, it's going to be one of those things that's going to be difficult to walk back, I think, because, you know, death has always been kind of an inconvenience at best in comics. But here, it's, it's something altogether different. Uh, we've got people dying in almost, almost every week's worth of books, we get at least one death. And uh, I wonder, like, when the dust settles... And when the you know the toys are put back in the box, whether or not they're broken or look anything like they what they resembled when they were taken out of the toy box, are we going to be counting these deaths? Like, is the Wikipedia page from Quentin for Quentin Quire going to just mention Dawn of X and cover it all there, or is it just going to be death, 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 death? It's a it's an interesting question. I'd like to hear what people think about uh, how we count these deaths. You know, it's. Kind of interesting, kind of interesting. But thank you, thank you for 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 raising that question, Walt. I had some excellent food for thought. I, I can't wait to hear what people think about it. Uh, next, we're going to wrap up with our friend Evan Bevins, who's also talking about X Men and Marauders number fourteen. Now he says, "I'm sending this in before I listen to the episodes. I just finished X Men and Marauders number fourteen. I must admit to liking at least the device of revisiting the Summoner's Tale with at least the impression of an honest telling this time. I still don't feel overly invested in the story, but I admit to a bit of empathy for Apocalypse here. I barely stifled a groan when I saw the cover of Marauders number 14 and the concept, a pre-fight dinner party. Weren't 12 parts enough preamble? But I was pleasantly surprised by the issue itself. I don't understand why Wolverine thinks Captain Avalon hooking up with Saturnine would solve all the problems. I know she's after him, but can't for the life of me understand how betting Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother solves the Iraqo Ament annihilation problem. But Wolverine's betrayal is being willing to do whatever it takes so those younger and relatively more innocent than him from having to fight fits with his character. Yes. Um, I think... I think I mentioned this during the episode. I think Wolverine was just looking for someone to blame. I think uh, he saw he saw Betsy's you know beautiful blonde British brother and was thinking, I got to find someone to blame, <laughs> and this is going to be our guy here. I don't know. I don't know exactly how powerful Saturnine is. I'm pretty sure with a snap of her finger, she could do whatever she wants. So if she wants a menth to go away, she could snap her fingers and it's gone. You know, I think that's how powerful she is here. So, I don't know that Brian would be able to convince her to do such a thing, since she seems so invested in this fight and just so tickled by the proceedings. But uh, I did definitely, uh, I did appreciate the the bit of conflict, and I definitely liked Wolverine remaining consistent in his uh, wanting to protect the younger the younger generation here, just like he did. That uh, in the in the lead up to uh, schism uh, back in uh, what twenty eleven or so, Evan continues. I realize that as slowly as things have come together, we still have several issues to go before Hellions number six. I don't think anyone believed they would derail the tournament, but I thought they would at least get their shot. 
At this rate, they'll arrive while Saturnine's orange priestesses are mopping up after the fighting. <laughs> it's a really good point there. I, I remember when I was putting together the the uh, show order, the list of uh, which books we were going to be covering. I remembered that there were two issues of the same book in a row, and I remember thinking it was quite weird. Of course, those were uh, Marauders 14 and 15, but when I read Hellions number 5, I was sure that, okay, it's like, okay, next is Hellions number 6. This must be the book where there were two in a row. And no, (laughs) no, we're not going to see the Hellions, I think, for, boy, three or four episodes. So we, we got some time. We got some time. Now, Evan sent us a follow-up. He says, Addendum on X-Men number 14. Listening to the episode, and you did better homework than me. I assumed that while the art was the, the same, more of the dialogue had changed. And I totally looked at it from the perspective of someone who didn't pay full price for the issues. Thank you, Marvel Unlimited. I like the concept in the abstract, but if you want to do that in if you want to do it that way, do it in a shorter sequence or make X-Men number 12 your free comic book day issue. It tells a more complete story, but you're only paying for it once. And yeah, that was perhaps the most infuriating part here is I mean, besides just the gimmick and the laziness uh, of the of the entire endeavor, the fact that the story really didn't change until the very end. I mean, everything happened as the summoner said it until the fight between Annihilation and Genesis. The summoner told us Genesis lost. Genesis told us that Genesis won. And that was it. That was it. It felt like it could have been done. Like you said here, do it in a shorter sequence. It's like, okay, let's do a let's do an info page where we where we tell the summoner's story in one page. Then we get to Genesis's fight with Annihilation, and you have Genesis win. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> you did the same thing. Um, I, I think I would have. I, I think I still would have groaned at it. I'm pro- you know, I probably wouldn't have. It pr- I probably would have been okay with it because that was the pertinent bit of the of the information that we needed. Was that Genesis survived and Genesis became Annihilation? That's what we needed to know, and that we. Definitely more creative ways to to present that information. Definitely less lazy ways to present that uh, information, and definitely less insulting ways to present that information. Like you say here, make this the free comic book day issue. That'd have been fine. That would have been fine because it would have actually felt like a value added thing here. I mean. We already did redouble our pages, right? We or reused the pages from the free comic book day in Exoswords Creation. So I mean, they've already reused them. Might as well have done it with this because you would have gotten a full story, not just a weird little teaser. We would have gotten the history of Arako for free. And despite the fact that the end of it was a lie, it would have been less of a slap in the face to have that given to us here in this book, only having paid for it one time. And actually being able to call back to the free comic book day thing and be like, oh, okay, that was the point of that. That's why it was important for me to get that free comic book day issue. And, uh, I mean, there there were just better ways to do this. There were definitely better ways to do this. And uh, I can't remember another issue of a a comic in quite a long time that made me this annoyed (laughs) as X-Men number 14. Maybe they can top it with X-Men number 15. We'll find out. Before we know it But uh, thank you so much for writing in And sharing your thoughts on those issues there Evan It's very very appreciated 
Now, if anybody out there would like to share their thoughts about any of these issues, any of these characters, anything in the world, cheap pizza on Valentine's Day, whatever you want, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of noise about comics and stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Whew, that was a long one, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> I would like to thank you all so, so much for spending so much of your time with me and allowing me to be part of your day today. And till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.